Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in films, books, and popular culture. My name is Bruce Markison, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tracy Asteria. We welcome you to the program. Coming up later, our guest will be Harrison Smith, a director, author, and a terrific horror historian as well. And before we get to Harrison, who will be our main topic of conversation, uh, Tracy and I want to talk about a few other things, uh, principally a film that just enjoyed its 75th anniversary. Before we do that, though, Tracy, uh, we made it through one episode. We're on to episode number two. So, uh, so far, so good. Absolutely. This is amazing. I've learned so much from you already, Bruce. And I've learned uh, very little about the technical side of things, which you are handling 100%. <laughs> that makes for a better program in every way. Uh, Tracy, I do want to talk about uh, Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein. June 15th uh, marked the 75th year of the debut of the film, uh, Universal Studios picture that uh, came out. It was something a little bit different, a combination of the two classic comedians with three different monsters, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman. It's one of the films that I grew up with. I did not actually watch the film on really any of those late night showcases. It was something that was featured late Sunday mornings before Yankee baseball on WPIX television. And it seemed to be on just about once a month. And I think I saw it pretty much every time. It's, uh, it, it's a, a film that I have a love affair with. Uh, what do you feel about it? You like it as much as I do, or am I a little bit over the top here? Well, I can tell you, I did enjoy it. I remember watching it many years ago when I was just a kid babysitting and it was on late night TV for me, but I actually had the privilege of kicking back and watching it yesterday afternoon as a refresher oh, nice. and it never fails to disappoint. It is, it's a wonderful film with, there's so much comedy with that little touch of horror and it's very nostalgic. I really do enjoy you know, kicking back and watching a couple of these movies. And this is this is actually one of my favorites from Abbott and Costello. You know, it's a it's a movie that really does stick with you from childhood to the adult years. For those who don't remember the movie, Lou Costello and Bud Abbott portray uh, Wilbur and Chick, a pair of rather inept freight handlers. Uh, what else could they be? They're asked to handle a shipment of large crates to McDougal's House of Horrors. One of the crates contains the body of Dracula, of course, is played by Bela Lugosi. Uh, another crate carries Frankenstein's monster. Dracula's master plan of domination is to revive the Frankenstein monster. Uh, his intentions obviously are nefarious, but he'll soon find some opposition from another monster, the Wolfman, who um, wants to play the part of hero and wants to take Dracula down. A couple of interesting notes about the film. Lou Costello initially rejected the film. He hated the script. He described it as that crap, said his young daughter could write something much better. But he later changed his mind when Universal Studios promised a $50,000 cash advance and also the involvement of director Charles Barton. Charles Barton was close friends with Lou Costello. Uh, Lou really regarded him as one of the best directors available, and as it turned out, Barton did a great job with the movie. Bela Lugosi makes only a second appearance as Dracula some 17 years after the original Dracula film came out. I actually think he's better here than in the original. He uh, was much more comfortable with the English language, 
by this point. He delivers his words more naturally, more comfortably, not quite as deliberately as he did in the original film from 31. And at the same time, uh, his character is just as intimidating, uh, particularly as far as the intensity of that stare. Uh, Glenn Strange played the Frankenstein monster for the third time in his career. This was after House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Lon Chaney making his fifth appearance as the Wolfman. Both are very good in the roles, not surprising that Chaney would be. Uh, Strange, though, I think is really underrated. You know, he draws a lot of difficult comparisons to Boris Karloff, who, of course, is the Frankenstein monster. But I thought Strange was very good here. He gave the monster a fierceness, uh, enormous size and strength. He was a much bigger man than Boris Karloff. And uh, that sense of the, the size and strength of the character uh, really does come across. Um, in concluding about the film, you know, sometimes horror comedies, they don't work because there's an imbalance. Too much comedy, too much horror. But with this one, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, there is that balance. The two comedians, who I'm, I'm long a fan of, genuinely funny, but also the monsters are allowed to play their role straight with a sense of terror. I also love the gothic imagery. The uh, form of Dracula's castle is, is something that's really... Uh, quite eye-catching. Also, the concluding scene is great where Abbott and Costello try to escape via boat while the monster stalks them from the dock. Uh, four and a half stars. This is one of my favorite films. It's really in my top five of all time. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. 75 years ago, it debuted in theaters. So we wanted to pass that remembrance along, but now it's on to the primary focus of today's show. And it's a conversation with one of my favorite people in horror, director and writer, Harrison Smith. I uh, got to know Harrison Smith at the old Ascaricon convention, which sadly doesn't take place anymore, uh, but hopefully will be revived in the future. Uh, interviewed Harrison, went to many of his presentations, always very lively, forthright conversations. Harrison has written the screenplay for the 2011 film, The Fields. He's directed horror films like Camp Dread, Death House, Where the Scary Things Are. And he's also now branched out into writing, author of the 2022 book. Uh, this time it's Personal, A Monster Kid's History of Horror, Memories, and Experiences. And he also has two newer books out. I've, I've read the first of his books, but haven't read these two new ones yet. Uh, one is called I Live the 80s, and the other is The Making of Leprechaun, I Need Me Gold. Love that title. Uh, those some of the accomplishments of Harrison Smith. Harrison, welcome to the Ghostly Gallery. How you doing? Thank you for having me, both of you. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on a second episode. Yeah, we'll go episode by episode until they uh, until they get rid of us, which hopefully <laughs> won't happen for a few years. <laughs> Harrison, I want to begin by asking about some of your early influences in horror. And we talked a little bit about this during our interview at one of the Scaricon events several sure. years back. Well, let's start. Favorite horror actor. If you boil it down to one person, who would it be? Wow. Uh, for my favorite horror actor, um, I'm, I'm going to have to say, man, I, it's just from nostalgia, from a complete nostalgia point of view. And, and everybody's just going to be like, get out. But man, I, I just so love Roddy McDowell as Peter <laughs> Vincent in Fright Night. Hmm. Oh, nice. <laughs> I really do. I, I, I got Peter Vincent even when I was 17 years old, I got Peter Vincent. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say that just 
because uh, there, there are just so many as well, too. But I, I think maybe even to second that or maybe rival Roddy McDowell would be uh, Vincent Price's Dr. Fives is Anton Fives. I, I love yeah. Dr. Fives. You know, Roddy McDowell is someone we don't, I guess, fully appreciate as a horror actor. Right. But he did a number of films. He did uh, The Legend of Hell House. Yep. Uh, he did the pilot film for Rod Serling's Night Gallery in right. 1969. I mean, he was terrific in the genre and certainly his portrayal of Peter Vincent's top of the list. There. Yes. Yeah, Definitely. Did you ever have a chance to meet him? I know he died in the 90s. You had probably not gotten into directing. Did your paths ever cross at any point? No, my path never crossed with Roddy. Um, I wish it did, especially just simply to say thank you for for all his contributions to the genre. Um, but no, my, my paths never crossed with him. Talk a little bit more about Vincent Price. Of course, a great career overall. But his his first Dr. Fibes film yes. really stands out. Easily one of the best five films Price ever did. Oh, I agree. I, I would put it up there. In my opinion, just for me, it is his best film. I know that there are, there are others that would argue that, and that's fine. But for me, uh, Dr. Fibes has it all. You know, that's that's how I feel on that one. Harrison, I also wanted to talk about directors now when we're young kids and you're about the same age as me maybe a few years younger uh we grew up really 70s 80s uh we don't have favorite directors as as younger fans we're focused more on the films and on the actors but then later on you do learn about directors you see how certain directors have a kind of an imprint they put on a film whether it's uh, an alfred hitchcock or a toby hooper Looking back, was there a favorite director from those films in the 70s and 80s that you grew up with? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think uh, because, you know, at that time, as, as you said, you know, that the interesting thing is, which my first book is about, is that most of the time you were exposed to these directors and their work through theatrical screenings. Um, there, there were few options uh, to see things. I mean, you know, if you had a VCR, which still even by the early 80s were not commonplace in everybody's homes and that goes even the same for cable uh you know a lot of people didn't have hbo they didn't i mean many did i did uh but that doesn't mean it, again if you wanted to see it you saw it in the theater so for me i remember you know seeing uh certain films that were the directors in, in the genre really made an impact on me and uh, so i would say emerging from that group because of the I think uh, more of the relatability access to them was, you know, the the lower budgeted directors like Carpenter, George Romero, uh, those those type of people, Frank Henenlotter. Uh, I actually reached out to Frank Henenlotter when I was 14. I looked him up in the New York City phone book and uh, <laughs> called him out of the blue. And the man was very nice to me. And then I ended up meeting him. He He had actually contracted me. Uh, to try to develop an animated series on Basket Case for him. And uh, <laughs> I finally got to meet him after all those years. I said, you probably don't remember me, but I was that kid that called you one night <laughs> out of the blue and uh, started yeah. asking questions. Um, you know, I, Again, a lot of that was fueled also by Fangoria. Uh, you know, you had access to Fangoria magazine, which really was your your main portal to the horror world, at least for me it was. And uh, even though, you know, it's kind of like porn where you're like, well, I 
you know, there are the pictures, but I really do get it for the articles. That's, that's really what it was, you know, like I, I read so much about these independent directors and how they run their sets and, and how they found their people and keeping the same people. So I've modeled myself uh, on that. I mean, I've told John Carpenter that I've told Tommy Lee Wallace that, uh, uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's one of those things where you see where they just use the same people and over and over because you, you find these good people and you hang on to them. So I think that was the major influence on me growing up in the seventies and early eighties of seeing these directors. And most of all, uh, you know, they were putting out multiple product, you know, Romero had his dead series, uh, you know, with Dawn of the dead coming out, uh, Carpenter, of course, not only just Halloween, but then escape from New York, the fog, all of those, uh, it, it made a huge impression on me. So they were the most influential. I mean, you know, you could say Ridley Scott, but, I wish I could say I walked out of Alien in 1979 going, wow, Ridley Scott really nailed it. I mean, Alien was the movie that that made me known to Ridley Scott, uh, Ridley mm-hmm. Scott known to me. Uh, but, you know, I was more aspiring for Carpenter or Romero because I kind of felt they were more relatable. You know, they're they're kind of down a notch at that point, you know, making the the grungy horror. You know, I mean, Alien was is brilliant. It's a masterpiece, not taking away from it. But, you know, it was a big studio film. So, uh, yeah. you know, for me, that's I think that answers your question. It's just, uh, you know, again, it was the relatability to these people. They were out there slogging it. You know, they're they're doing what they can. They're making the best with what they have. You know, they don't have, you know, a 20 million dollar budget, a 10 million dollar budget. You know, John is making Halloween right. for 300 grand. Mm-hmm. How well have you gotten to know John Carpenter? I can't say well. I, I was lucky enough to be introduced to him uh, through Tommy Lee Wallace. Uh, I've communicated with John. I've communicated with Cody, his son. And I'm working hand-in-hand with his ex-wife, Adrian Barbeau, uh, on a TV pilot series for Netflix um, based on one of her books. Nice. So, uh, you know, it's not like I just pick up the phone and call John. I mean, I have his cell phone number, but... Uh, that's not how it works. So it's like, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, that's, that's the extent that I, I know John, you know, so um, that's about it. Moving on to your own professional career, really your first horror effort was as a writer, a really good movie called the fields, mm-hmm. which came out in the early 2010s. And I know Tracy was curious to ask about that because that film, which you wrote, mm-hmm. is based on a personal experience. Correct. Uh, but Tracy, this this was a movie that you watched and you really came away impressed with. Very much so. I actually watched it last night. Um, the the most important thing was it was based on true events. So I I was really curious um, to kind of get the story behind that. I, I was fascinated by by the concept in the movie and it really left me on the edge of my seat and i have quite an impression of that it's it's definitely a movie that i will never forget so i i'm really curious to kind of hear a little bit more about the background of that if you sure no problem um well first of all it did happen to me i'm the little boy in the film and uh Mm -hmm. cloris leachman uh gave such a performance as my grandmother that I always say that she didn't play my grandmother. She channeled her. That That is pretty yes. much, when I describe my grandmother, I just say, watch the fields, because that's how she was. 
um, you know, the, the cranky foul mouthed, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's exactly what she was. Um, so, you know, it's the closest thing I'm going to see to my grandmother being alive again is seeing the fields. So, uh, but I, you know, I, I put this together as I thought it was an interesting story of what happened to us, uh, our farmhouse. It was a small little farm mat. It wasn't really in the movie they portrayed as a much bigger functioning farm, but it really wasn't. It was more of a, a smaller farmette. And, um, you know, we just came under attack under this random attack that, uh, the events lasted roughly about two weeks and then they stopped as suddenly as they started. So, uh, I witnessed all of that. I mean, they, they came out of the corn, they, they, they did smash the windows, all those events that you see happened. Uh, they killed the dogs. Mm-hmm. We assume they killed the dogs. The dogs went missing. Um, but they, they, they never left, you know? So it's like, we, that's, that's pretty much, we know what happened to them. Uh, you know, cut the power lines, did that kind of stuff. And then, like I said, as, as quickly as it started, it ended, um, and then I had an investor who came to me and said, I, I hear you want to make a movie. I hear you're the guy. I want to make this movie. Uh, what do you got? And so I pitched him a couple ideas that I had. And he's like, nah, nah. And then I pitched mm-hmm. him this one. He said, wait a minute, this happened to you? And I said, yeah. He goes, I'm interested in this. Let me read it. So he read it. Uh, he liked it. And uh, we, we went forward from there. I did not direct the fields. Uh, I wrote and produced it. Mm-hmm. I felt I wasn't uh, ready to, to direct at that time. In hindsight, I think that was a grave mistake. Um, but it is what it is. Uh, my, my only complaint about the film is I felt that the directors were trying to take it too much in a horror movie direction. And uh, that's not right. what I wanted at all. And I know that both Cloris and Tara Reed had said that, you know, they, they kind of really changed the script that I read. And that, that's fine. That's their prerogative. As directors, they're they're allowed mm-hmm. to do that. That's that's their point of view. It's just one that I did not agree with. Um, it, the film has gone on to garner, uh, you know, really good audience, uh, good reputation. It's won a number of awards, best pictures, even and uh, you know, best script and all that stuff. So I really can't complain. It's just simply um, yeah, the the horror elements were not my idea. I did not want to make a horror film. So. It was right. more, I wanted it to be of a psychological thriller, which is really what it was in real life. When, when they got the family stuff, they nailed it. Like those cousins in the basement, the, that's really what my cousins were like. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, it's, and in fact, you could make a whole movie just on that. And my aunt that was uh, uh, laden with the stroke, you know, when Cloris is sitting there talking to her on that, that was all very accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they, when they did the oh family stuff, they nailed it. And, and I was insistent on that. You know, it was like, you, it's got to be this way. She would have done this. She wouldn't have done that. Like, and Cloris was, I mean, Cloris arrived, I think she arrived like five days early. And she arrived five days early simply to sit with me. And she said, tell me everything about your grandmother. I want to, I want to see every picture. I want to watch every video. I want to hear her voice. And it's like, well, this is why this woman's won an Oscar. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, she absorbed her. Then she went to Allentown uh, to the Paul Mitchell salon and she had her hair cut and dyed and bleached to match my grandmother's. Hmm. Yep. Wow. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, the fields is definitely 
uh, one of my more popular films, and I'm glad that it is, but I always say that I would have done it differently. Can I ask sure. you a question? Um, would it be something that you might consider in the future? Like, would it be something you might want to kind of do like a redo or maybe do it in the way that you would it's it's funny it my done? business partner has suggested that very thing um and and i i've thought of it right now my my plate's pretty full mm -hmm. uh but i have thought right. of it but you know the the hard part is man is that even when i was writing this there was nobody more i wanted than than cloris leachman because my grandmother oh, right. adored yes. her on mary tyler moore phyllis was her favorite character and you know, Cloris, man, I just don't know how you top Cloris's performance of my grandmother. I really don't. But there, I'm sure there is an actress out there. I mean, I know we didn't know if we get Cloris. And um, so we looked at a number of, of actresses. One of them uh, was uh, the, the woman, uh, Estelle Harris, I believe, from Seinfeld, who played George's mom. And, you know, she, right. yeah, she oh, wow. really wanted to do it. But I just kept thinking all people are going to see is Mrs. Costanza, right? That's, that's all they're going to see or Mrs. Potato Head, right? Like it's, <laughs> and she's a gifted actress. She was a wonderful actress. It has nothing to do with that, but it was just, I don't know. You know, my gut said, man, just keep trying to hold out for Chloris. And, and we did. It really, it, it, I really enjoyed it, but I, I will tell you if, if that's ever in the cards for you to do a redo, I will definitely be down to watch <laughs> that in, in a heartbeat. It, it was amazing, an amazing story. And I definitely feel for the little boy. I really, yeah. Do. <laughs> well, you know, the, the home life was, was pretty accurately depicted as well too. So, um, it was, it was rough, you know, I, I, it, up until, I think until my stepfather came into the picture, um, it was, it was a little rough going, you know, at home. Mm. And then, uh, but I, I mean, I had like, that's why I wrote a book about it. I, I lived the eighties because man, by when I moved to Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania and you know, the, the eighties rolled in, I, I lived a John Hughes life, so I can't complain. Mm. Harrison, were you able to keep in touch with Cloris at all after the I film? I did. I stayed in touch with Cloris actually right up till her death. So, um, yes, I stayed in touch with her and her daughter and her son and her. And, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was privileged to have a friendship with her one night. In fact, I was in Santa Monica and I got together with her. It's kind of funny. You're calling up this 80 some year old woman, but she's like, Oh, I'll meet you. And we went out to this bar in Santa Monica down on the pier and out of nowhere, she's just like, you know what? I think I'm going to bartend. And she went behind the bar and just started bartending and people are kind of looking around like, is, is that Cloris Leachman? You know? <laughs> wow. And she was just going to town bartending and uh, yeah, you know, and then when we left, there was this big dude out in the parking lot smoking and she walked up to him and she ripped the cigarette out of it. She hated smoking. She hated it. And she ripped mm. the cigarette out of his mouth and she pointed at him. She goes, you know what smoking makes you boring. And she walked away and the guy looked at me and goes, was that just Cloris Leachman? I'm like, yeah, that was, that was Cloris Leachman. <laughs> <laughs> no, terrific experience. Yeah, it's great. You had a wonderful. chance to work with her and yeah. And really oh, sounds like you became working. friends as well. Oh my God. She was such energy on that set. Uh, we, we adored her. 
We loved working with Cloris. She was, she was, it, it was a gift to work with her. I have so many stories of working with her. I can't even say enough how lucky I was to, to be able to interact with her the way that I did. Just a couple of years after you had the experience with the fields writing the, uh, the script for that, you direct your first full-length feature film, Camp Dread 2014. Really interesting cast right off the bat. Eric Roberts, Danielle Harris, yep. and someone I've gotten to know at some of the horror conventions, a delightful person, Felissa Rose. Oh, yes. A pretty, pretty good cast to work with on your first really major film. Yeah, I was lucky there as well, too. And uh, uh, Felissa, it's funny how that, that happened. I was introduced to her by a reporter from Fangoria magazine. And, you know, he, he was interviewing me when I was on the set. I produced uh, Six Degrees of Hell with Corey Feldman, and I wrote that. And um, while he was interviewing me, he said, well, what's coming up next? I said, well, so I have this slasher film. At that time, it wasn't called Camp Dread. It was called Dead TV. I said, but I would only make it. I said, it takes place at a summer camp. I would only make it if I could get Felissa Rose. And, and the guy goes, oh, I know Felissa Rose. I'm like, you do? And he goes, yeah, you want her phone number? I'm like, no, but we can, we can go through this, through the proper channels. Maybe you could talk to Felissa, see if she'd be interested in talking to me. And then we can go from there and send a script and blah, 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 blah. And that's what happened. You know, no, I'm not going to call Felissa Rose out of the blue and just, be like, hey, you want to make my movie? Um, so we went from there, and and Felissa and I hit it off. We've been close ever since. We've had a lot of adventures together. Um, I always joke, whatever convention she goes to, I always ask. I'll text her in the morning and go, "Is is the city still standing?" You know that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, uh, we had a great time making that. We shot it at a real summer camp. Uh, the cast was terrific. I loved working with Eric and Danielle was just, wow, what a professional and just so easy to work with. And Felissa just, you know, she was really there as, as the major nod to sleepaway camp. And in my first book, I talk about that when I went to see sleepaway camp in 83, I was with a girl and we watched it, And then of course the big famous ending drops and the girl I was with was just like, I think she was just so totally revolted by the ending. I wasn't just that she was shocked. I think she was just thoroughly disgusted. And um, when we left, we were walking out toward the lobby and she goes, well, what did you think? And I said, well, I said, I thought it was a fun little horror film. And she stopped and she looked at me and she said <laughs> something along the line of, I don't think I can date anyone who thinks that kind of movie is fun. And I was kind of like, well, I, I guess we're going to, break up then i guess <laughs> like, what do you say to that wow i guess we're our film up. ends a relationship yeah and you know and amazing here i am now i i work with felissa she's uh produced a couple of films with me she starred in another couple of films with me she was with uh zombie killers um she was in death house and she uh was the associate producer on the special so i wonder if that girl out there <laughs> always wonders <laughs> if she ever sees these films like son of a bitch he went on to do that yeah. <laughs> and you liked Eric Roberts. Oh, I loved him. Every, you know, the cast, the crew, especially um, the, the day after Eric left, they were kind of mopey. And I said, you know, I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, we miss Eric. <laughs> they were all like, yeah, I miss Eric. Uh, he was always filled with great. He's a gifted storyteller. 
So when we had downtime, the crew would just, it was like story time at a library. They'd, they'd sit almost like, you know, crisscross applesauce kind of thing, listening to Eric, uh, tell his stories and, um, they just loved him. And plus he really liked the part. Like he, he was a good skeevy Hollywood guy, you know, in this and, Mm. and he loved it. So, uh, no complaints working with Eric whatsoever. He was, and plus he was just so pleasant and nice to everyone. My understanding, uh, Harrison is that the film was actually made at a summer camp in the Poconos. Correct. Is, is that right? Tell us about that camp and, what kinds of things did you have to do to to make it a better backdrop for a horror film? Sure. Well, the camp itself, uh, they've always asked me till this day just not to really uh, divulge its real name only because they're afraid it'll scare people off. So I'm, I'm honoring that. But it was a real camp in the Poconos. Um, it was really a camp uh, that was more designed, I think, for like younger kids kind of thing. Uh, not really all teenagers. So one of the things we had to do was kind of like uh, adult it up a little bit. You know, we had to mm-hmm. get rid of some of the more uh, kiddie kind of things like little swings and stuff like that. We had to haul those off. You know, production teams had to, you know, just move those out of the way of camera, you know, jungle gyms and things like that we had to get rid of. Um, but then overall, like, I think a lot of those camps are just all built the same, right? Like they all have a mess hall. They all have their cabins and things. So um, overall, it was uh, it wasn't a big deal to adapt it. Uh, the real problem that we had was that it it just seemed like that damn camp was underneath one of the busiest air traffic ways in the Poconos. Mm. I mean, I, I swear, every time you yelled action, the sound guy would be like, hold for jet, hold for plane, <laughs> you know, and then you have to wait. And then the plane comes up and then you got to go. And then if you don't get moving, there's going to be another one. So uh, it, you, you don't notice those things until you're doing it. Right. And then you're like, wow, man, there are a lot of freaking planes coming over here. So um, we had to deal with that. Uh, otherwise, the weather was really cooperative. The weather was beautiful. Uh, we had one bad day uh, where the remnants, uh, I can't remember which hurricane it was, but uh, a hurricane had passed up the East Coast and we caught like the the outer edge of it. So it poured and rained one day. That was it. Otherwise, the most perfect late summer weather you could ask for. So uh, the, the camp was very isolated, had a terrific gigantic pond with a, a dock system. Like it was great. It, it looked like, you know, a Crystal Lake kind of camp. And that's what we were looking yeah. for. It had to have that. It had to be that. And it worked. I'm curious about the challenge of making this film different from all the previous summer camp horror films. You mentioned mm-hmm. Sleepaway Camp with Felissa. Sure. Uh, Friday the 13th, uh, The Burning, which came out in the early 1980s, somewhat of an underrated movie. Yep. Was that a major challenge in trying to make this something that obviously wasn't a copy, but something that was also very different from those movies? Oh, yeah, it was. And, and the reason why, for all the things you just mentioned, you know, we're we embrace the fact that we're almost, you know, dealing with tropes in this movie, right? Like, uh, you know, that the Julian had, you know, created these summer camp movies, which are really derivative of Friday the 13th. It's just Friday the 13th with a different name um, where, you know, Felissa, you know, was, uh, you know, an actress in almost all of them kind of thing. 
So mm-hmm. it was, you know, embracing the trope and, and a bit of the satire without going overboard into full-blown spoof. We weren't making scary movie. Uh, we're not doing that kind of thing. We wanted to take it seriously, and I think we showed that, especially with some of the violence in it. Um, we also wanted to add the reality show concept of almost like I'm, I'm fascinated by the degradation of society. Uh, I really feel that, you know, shows like reality shows like 90 Day Fiance, The Bachelor are some of the worst shit on television. I, I think um, it's detrimental to us. It's it's kind of like it's worse even than Jerry Springer, which I think might have kicked everything off in the way of really, a, you know, kind of like a B12 shot in, in the downgrading of society. So I wanted this film to be a commentary on that, because when you watch it, when you really analyze it with maybe the exception of one or two, there's really nothing wrong with these kids. It's the damn parents. The Hmm. parents are the problem, you know, like these kids, like I remember one studio when they, they were looking to buy it, wanted me to cut the ending uh, where we see the kids one more time in their audition videos for the TV show. And uh, I refused and they were just like, well, then we're not going to take it. And they said, why, why are you digging your heels in on this? And I said, because those ending videos show us that real people died here. Like these were real characters. They weren't just, you know, the, the hot chick, the dick, you know, that kind of thing. They were, they were real people. And most of them died wrongly. They should not have died. It's a shame that they died. They, they were basically sacrificed for our entertainment. That's basically what it is. So um, that's where I think it set it off from other summer camp movies. There really is no bullying. There isn't uh, anything like that. There's there's sex and everything, which you got to have. You got to have your nudity. You got to have your sex and all that stuff. But it wasn't about, you know, people just go to a camp, start having sex and then die. Um, you know, they were there to compete for a challenge. How ruthless can they go? So you have a bit of a, a lottery system going on there. You have a bit of a most dangerous game. Uh, you know, there, there are other elements there that I wanted to comment on and especially in the budget range that we had. So, you know, I, I wanted to elevate it above that instead of just making a 10 little Indians where, you know, these people go and, you know, they just get killed having sex. Every time they have sex, they die. So, um, I, I hope that answers your question, but I think, uh, that's that's where we work to to move it away from just the traditional summer camp slasher movie. Absolutely. I think it was shortly after Camp Dread came out that I first saw you speak at Scaricon and I was really impressed with number one, your speaking ability, your ability to tell stories, and also your willingness to be really honest about things that you both like and don't like in the horror industry. Uh, then we we come to Death House, 2017. It actually debuted at a Scaricon. Yes. I believe it was the one in Springfield, Mass. Yeah, we did it. We did a test preview there. Yeah. So so I was in that audience. I personally like the movie, especially the first half of the film, but then it drew a lot of online criticism. And I'll be honest, I thought a lot of it was unfair and over the top. But as a director, how do you respond when you face so much negative criticism? What's your reaction to it? What do you do? Well, I mean, again, you know, art is subjective. So that's one. Here's here's where I have the dividing lines and how I handle it. Number one, we made 
a solid good movie with great production value, great acting, all of that stuff. That I don't worry about. We didn't deliver garbage. Because if I wanted to deliver garbage, I would have gone with the rewrite of Gunner's original script by someone else where it was just basically torture porn for 90 minutes. And we're talking like just, you know, quick walk on characters that were all all the horror people were basically inmates in an asylum. That's what the, mm -hmm. the revise was. And I, I mean, the script was so bad when I got off the plane coming back from L.A., I threw it right out in the garbage can. So it was like Gunner hated it. So that's where the rumor came that Gunner hated anything but his own script. He hated that second revise, which I had nothing to do with. Gunner and I sat down and worked through everything, and Gunner gave his blessing on my script before he died. So how do I deal with that criticism? Well, number one, it's, it's, this part is out of my control. And that is, and I think you'll probably agree with this, um, most of the audience, no matter how many times you warned them and gave the disclaimer, it's kind of like Halloween 3. Even though you say it's all new, all new, it doesn't mean anything because I'm going to say a majority of the viewing horror audiences out there were expecting an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein mashup. That's what they were expecting. They were expecting Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Candyman, Pinhead. They were expecting all these characters to be in this movie. And that was why they wrongly labeled it the expendables of horror. It's like that put such an impression in people's minds. And I'm telling you, just before that screening, Bruce, um, someone tweeted online, Harrison Smith says that, you know, they aren't going to be their regular characters, but I think he's just, you know, trying to divert us. And it's going to be a big surprise. And I wrote back to that tweet and it's probably still online out there somewhere. I wrote back, if you're coming to this and you're going in with that expectation and I put in all caps, you are going to fucking hate this movie. <laughs> that's exactly what I wrote. Um, mm. Because that's what I think most went in when this was originally pitched to me and they said, oh, we're going to call it the Expendables of Horror. I said, that is a bad move. And they're just like, why? I said, well, number one, you're giving off a Freddy versus Jason, uh, an Abbott and Costello kind of mashup. And I said, that's not what this is. There, Kane Hodder yeah. is not going to be putting on the hockey mask. If we get Robert Englund, where he's not going to be wearing the fedora and striped shirt. It's, it's not going to happen. You know, I mean, my God, you, it, it took how long just to get us Freddy versus Jason? And they all own the rights. So mm. how are we going to combine all these characters, most of all, financially, you can't afford it. So they, I, I still say that, you know, this expendables of horror thing, while it got it out there and that was kind of cool, I think did a lot of damage and caused a lot of backlash. So how did I handle it? I don't know. You, you look at it as thank you for watching it. Thank you for your time. Um, I don't know what to tell you. You know, it, it wasn't. It wasn't, look, I didn't do a Ryan Johnson and say I subverted your expectations, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. I went in making a movie very clear that they will not be their monster characters. They will not be this. And people just, they just didn't want to hear that. They just, they wanted the mashup. They wanted Freddy yeah. versus Jason. That's what they wanted. And it just wasn't going to happen. And when that guy tweeted that, that solidified it for me. I'm like, 
this is going to be rough. <laughs> That's how I yeah. know. This is going to be rough because they're not listening, you know? And I would get just crap by one of the producers saying, you got to stop giving interviews saying that this isn't the, I say, we are misleading people. I don't want to miss, look, it's going to be like Halloween three all over again, right? You're, you're, you're not really saying Michael Myers isn't in it. You're not really, what does all new mean, right? Like, what does that mean? It just means all yeah. new is in a story. And then look, I sat in a theater over Halloween weekend with a girlfriend watching Halloween three and watched half the audience walk out, you know, but the poster said all new. Okay. But that doesn't say all new in the way of there is no Jamie Lee Curtis. There is no Michael Myers. You know, there, there is none of that. If you would have just been open and upfront about the marketing of it, it should have never been called Halloween three. Well, with death house, it should have never been called the expendables of horror. Never. Yeah. When you look at and look it, all from an objective point of view with the MK Ultra experiments and all that stuff, it's a pretty heady, trippy film. And um, I'm proud of it. I, I love the film. I think it came out great. There were things I really, really wanted to do more. We didn't have the budget for. Uh, but I think there's some really cool elements, some great characters, and most of all, uh, some great points, you know, some subtleties that are in there that really give it, you know, something to, some, for some people to chew on. Like it left you with more questions than it did answers. Just to clarify for our listeners, Harrison is referring to Gunnar Hansen, legendary figure in horror, played Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1974. Death House was really in a lot of ways his project, uh, set to be the writer and, and a performer in the film. He sadly died in 2015, two years before the film actually debuted. Was he able to see something close to the finished product or was he still no. seeing just very rough edits? No, he didn't even see any edits. Um, mm. His widower, Betty Towers, supplied us uh, with uh, some footage of him that he makes that cameo as a holograph in it. Uh, but he and I went over the script, you know, page by page. And, you know, I was the one who came up with the idea of making this a subterranean prison. And he loved it. He, he was just like, because mm. what Gunner wanted was the commentary on good versus evil. That's what he wanted. He wanted good and evil to be examined. And that is why the film opens up with the line, who weeps for Satan, the original sinner by Bill Mosley saying that. And the fact mm. that at the end, the five Satans are the five evils. I mean, there were three Satans in the previous scene, but the five evils, you know, are looking at Cody Longo and Courtney Palm and saying, you know, well, where's God? What, what, what are you talking about with God? What, what God does this? What God does that? We're, we're at least up front about what we do. You know, um, that's what Gunner loved. You dedicated the film to his memory. What was he like as a person? He was a teddy bear. He was uh, a big, gentle giant. In an, in an alternative universe, he could have been Santa Claus. Hmm. You know, big, white, snowy beard and long, flowing white hair. Uh, a big, gentle giant. Soft-spoken. Um, just, just a gentleman and just one of the nicest people I've ever encountered. For those who haven't seen Death House, the roster of people in it is amazing. Bill Mosley, Tony Todd, Kane Hodder, 
Uh, the late Sid Haig, who I had, had a chance to interview, and that was a great experience. Yes. Uh, D. Wallace, uh, Michael Berryman, Adrian Barbeau does some narration. Uh, I've met her. She's terrific as well. Uh, they're all in the film. I'm curious about Sid Haig, what he was like. Sid was a wealth of information. And in fact, uh, we had Sid for two days. And um, you knew that his health was declining. You could see that. And, uh, but I wanted to spend as much time with him as I could. So for the two days that we had him on set, I ate lunch with him. And I remember mm. sitting there with him and saying to him, basically, Sid, tell me everything. And he laughed. He's like, what do you mean everything? I said, Sid, you've been in this industry like 50 years. So tell me what you've seen, what's changed. You've come up the ranks with Roger Corman and you know all these people. Tell me everything. And he did. He just went over, you know, the evolution of the industry and the horror genre and the independent movement. And, you know, he was seeing things. He said, I'm seeing disturbing things. You know, the the Disney juggernaut, the MCU juggernaut, like he was seeing dangerous things coming up as well, too. And um, I remember at Scaracon when we went to debut this for the sneak preview, we were sitting in a bar together and he said, hey, did you uh did you bring your, your review cards for the audience after your test audience cards? And I said, yes, I did. He goes, let me see them. So I handed them over. They were on these, they were printed up on these, you know, notebook uh, index card type size. And, he, and they had like a scale of zero to 10 with 10 being the best zero being the worst. And so he, I'll never forget what he said to me. He just said, you know, he said, kid, here's what you want. He said, you want some zeros, ones and twos, whatever. And I said, okay, he goes, because if they give you that, that means even if they hated it, you evoked an emotion. And he said, of course, you want your, you know, your sevens, eights, nines and tens, that kind of thing. Um, of course, you want that. But he said, if you get a stack of fives, then your movie made no impression whatsoever. Hmm. And uh, he said, you don't want that. He said, don't worry about the zeros to the threes or fours. He said, what you don't want is a stack of fives. Yeah. I never would have thought of it that way. Yeah, no, it was really, really interesting. You know? Yeah. He seemed like a great guy. He was so modest, um, but at the same time had so many great stories, just a phenomenal career. Oh, he did. And that's, that's what I wanted to hear about. I wanted to hear about all of this, you know, and, and especially, you know, what he has seen and how the industry, especially the independent horror industry has evolved and, and changed, you know, for the better and maybe not so much for the better. Um, so he, he was a wealth of information and, you know, we, we, I think we just kind of, we hang on one second, please. Harrison, one more film I wanted to talk about and I actually just watched it this weekend on prime video came out in 2022, uh, Where the Scary Things Are. And this is a oh, film- Bruce, I think we lost we our lost guest. Him? Okay. Harris, yeah, Harrison's internet has been a little bit touchy. Okay. Um, but um, this is definitely a super fascinating conversation. The career that Harrison has is incredible. And the stories that he has is amazing. Yeah, you know, Harrison is, is still a relatively young guy. And I think we're going to see a lot more films from him and also a lot more books from him because he likes writing too. 
And I think mm -hmm. in some ways, the best is yet to come. But one of the things I'm really impressed with from Harrison Smith is that he's such an historian of the genre. When I first talked to him at Scaricon at Springfield, Mass., a few years ago, he was so willing to talk about horror history, uh, going back to the 30s, the classics from Universal Studios. Uh, he was willing to talk about some of the great films from the 60s, uh, films like uh, Psycho and The Birds from Hitchcock, Rosemary's Baby in 1968, mm -hmm. uh, then films from the 70s like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, I suspect a lot of you know, relatively young directors from today, and this is not a commentary on their talent and their ability to direct, but I suspect many of them don't necessarily have that love and appreciation of horror history. Uh, but Harrison is, is certainly a guy that has that, and that's something that I appreciate, and I think ultimately um, will make uh, for a better filmmaker because he can learn from the Hitchcocks and the Hoopers and the Romeros and some of these uh, uh, these other really important directorial figures. Harrison, do we have you back with us? You do. I don't know what happened. Everything dropped there, but uh, I am back. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you. We'll proceed. Yeah. I did want to talk about one more film. Sure. I just watched it the other night on Prime Video, Where the Scary Things Are, sure. 2022. Yeah. I really like this one. Uh, I went in not really knowing a lot. Again, saw some of the online reviews. They didn't seem all that favorable at IMDb, but then I started watching the film and I thought this is good. And then it started picking momentum. It got better and it got better and it, it had a, a nice ending as well. For those who haven't seen it, it's about a group of high school students taking inspiration uh, from a school project given by a very creative teacher and they become obsessed with putting this video together. They want to get more likes, more screen views, and led by a young girl who unfortunately has pretty nefarious intentions, uh, she really pushes the envelope and puts other people in danger, ultimately puts the group of six kids in danger as well. Uh, it's, it's a really creative effort. It's not really like anything I've ever seen. Thank you. Uh, but I thought I thought this was I thought this was excellent. Where did this idea come from? Well, first, let's address the IMDb or anything like that. And that is reviews are by people who understand film and uh, understand film history and, and also know film criticism comments on IMDb or YouTube or whatever. I have learned over the years to just simply let them roll off my back because when I when the fields first came out and I listened, I read to I read one on IMDb where this one person said, oh, and the old lady in the fields, man, she can't act. And it's like you just said that about Cloris Leachman. <laughs> Dude, you don't know shit about film. So that's the level of criticism that is coming online uh, at IMDb. And, and it's like what they say in where the scary things are when the one kid says, hey, it's the Internet. Everybody shits on everything. That's what people do. So, like, there are people that, that hate Jaws. There are people that hate anything. So I don't take the comments really all that much to heart because it's like, yeah, well, I, you know, my other answer also is, so where's your movie? Oh, you don't have one. <laughs> right, because you don't make them. You just sit and watch them. Got it. Okay. And most of all, from a generation now that they don't even watch them. 
they just skip over everything and skip to the good parts, you know, on, on a small phone. That's what they watch their movies on. So for me, um, just moving past that real quick, I don't really care what the IMDb ratings are. I've seen movies with great IMDb ratings that are terrible. So it's like, whatever. Um, but with, with this film, the, the number one thing I wanted to do uh, was make a social commentary on a situation that is plaguing this country. It's plaguing other countries as well. But, you know, these these kids that are doing this kind of thing, whether they're shooting up the schools or they're, you know, the Slender Man stabbings, that's what really inspired me were the Slender Man stabbings. And that is mm-hmm. we're seeing this is a problem that is almost endemic uh, to upper middle class white kids. We're not seeing massive school shootings in the ghetto or the hood, as we like to call it. Uh, We are seeing these in affluent neighborhoods, affluent schools coming from kids whose families' median incomes are three, four hundred thousand up sometimes. Now, not all of them. It's not perfect. But overall, we are seeing a problem here that nobody wants to talk about. And um, I'm a big fan of 1979's Over the Edge, uh, what was uh, Matt Dillon's first film. And uh, that had a major influence on me as well with this motion picture. And really what I, I haven't thinking, seen, I haven't seen that one. Tell me quickly what it's about. Sure. It's based on, it's loosely based on the true story of a, a group of kids that really just uh, attacked their middle school and trapped all the parents inside. Uh, their parents moved them all to this, like uh, what is supposed to be this great pre-planned community, right? It had its own roller skating rink, its own grocery store, its own movie theater. It's called New Granada. And uh, like this was supposed to be Shangri-La and the parents are Mm. just too busy working and not paying attention to their kids. And these kids have too much money, too much time and they're bored and uh, they have really no moral compass. And that's what I wanted in this. I wanted this to be where what if the Goonies were bad? What if the Goonies were the Columbine kids? Mm. You know, what if they use sloth to hurt people? Right. Or E.T. What if the bad kids found E.T. and made him do bad stuff or they killed him? In fact, one kid wrote online. I I don't know where it was, but said something about along the line. If if I found E.T., I would have bludgeoned him with a hammer. So Hmm. that's the kind of kid I was I was writing about. I will disagree with the critics, though, who say that there are no likable characters in the film. I thought the, the young teacher who gave them this assignment to begin with. First of all, I thought the the young actor who played him was excellent. He did a great job. I thought the teacher was, yeah, the teacher was well-intentioned, tried to kind of stand up against the principal who fully didn't understand the situation at all. So I thought the teacher was the one likable character, but the six kids, so unlikable, these are supposedly all their friends and they treat their friends like their enemies. They treat their friends with sarcasm, with insults. Uh, there is no sympathy. There is no empathy at all. Our guest has been Harrison Smith, director of such films as Camp Dread, Death House, and Where the Scary Things Are. Uh, he's also written the book, this time it's personal, a monster kid's history of horror memories and experiences. I've read the book cover to cover and do recommend it. Some great memories from films, uh, particularly in the 1980s, uh, but also in other decades as well. Harrison, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. We'd love to have you on again in the near future. Thanks for being with us. 
Also want to mention that uh, in future shows, we want to talk uh, further with uh, Tracy Asteria about her involvement as a paranormal investigator. I've had that request come from uh, some of our listeners. They want to know about Tracy's experience, her career as a paranormal investigator. So Tracy, uh, be prepared to talk about that in future episodes. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. And this has been an exciting interview. Thank you so much, Harrison. Our thanks to Harrison Smith. Thank you, Harrison. Thanks, uh, Tracy Asteria, our co-host on the Ghostly Gallery. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, this uh, program and hope you'll continue to listen. Join us next time right here at the Ghostly Gallery podcast.